Good morning. Welcome to all of our visitors that we have here this Friday. Hey, Welcome get, to George let's, Fox. Let's clap for our visitors today. Yes. Welcome. You're visiting Friday Fox. So pleased to have you. Welcome to Theo 102. Welcome, good students. We have a couple of announcements for you, and then we'll get on with our show. The first is next week's schedule is an odd week. It's the first so. of several of these, okay? And we're going to announce the heck out of them. We'll, we're saying it now, but we'll also send an email to remind everybody. Monday is, of course. The lecture, but Wednesday not is usually. the panel. This, but next week, next week, though, it's not like that, because next week, Monday, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and we have off of school. And so we won't be coming to the lecture on Monday. We'll be doing the lecture in here on Wednesday. Wednesday. And, and then we are back here on Friday as usual. So there's no, no section There's no on section Wednesday. next week. We're going to do, the, we're gonna do the lecture and the panel and not the section. So that's weird because usually Wednesday we're not in here, but next Wednesday, where are we? Right here. Here, Bauman. You will get emails about this. Everybody FYI. cool with that? Yes. Has anybody got their hands on this book yet? This book? Yes. Yes. We're tracking those hands. Just we're, kidding. Yeah, we're, we're not. tracking. Yes. There are cameras. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but make sure you get that book. We need you to get this book because starting week three in section, this is going to be one of the centerpieces of discussion, along with talking about the lecture and talking about the Bible readings as we read through the Bible on that journey. Um, we also put a PDF up on the schedule and on the syllabus all over the place and by the textbooks on the syllabus to the first three chapters, which is all we can give you online per copyright rules of this book. And so if you're having trouble obtaining it, we got you floated for the third week, um, your first time discussing it, no worries. But after that, you have to have it you have to have it in person because it's not fun to discuss a book when you can't, you know, when, when people, some people don't have it in front of them. Then it's just like, what are we talking about? And if you want to read out loud in section, you got to have the book physically. Okay, so as a reminder, this week we tackled, or Dr. Doak in his lecture tackled a pretty difficult topic um, based on the line in the creed. What, what is that line? Suffered under Pontius, Pontius Pilate. Pilate. And so um, we are considering the big idea of theodicy, not the odyssey, but theodicy. The odyssey is an epic poem by Homer from the, yes. from the 8th century It's, it's a classic. Check that out. Yeah. But this week we are talking about theodicy, and we are trying a new format, which is a debate format. What do you think about today? a debate? What do you think about a debate? Do people want that? Is yeah. That I see some enthusiasm. That's We have that's to give great. the people what they want. So when we do these debates, we're not going to do them every week. It's not going to be a debate after every panel. We're still going to do some of our normal panels. But every now and again, we're just going to spice it up with a debate, usually but not always featuring the lecturer from that week, um, taking up one position on the topic, and then somebody else from the teaching team um, taking up a different position. But we have some guidelines for you all just to let you know what's going on. Each week, we're going to have uh, professors representing two distinct viewpoints, but two distinctly Christian viewpoints. So we're not having a Christian viewpoint versus a non-Christian viewpoint, but these are traditionally held Christian ideas that not all Christians agree on together. So that's one guideline we want to let you know about. So one of our ideas is on Monday, we're trying to present a big idea, and we're trying to present, so there's this saying that Christians have used, in the essentials, unity, have you ever heard this saying? In the non-essentials, diversity, and in all things, charity. Um, so Monday, the idea on Monday is that we're trying to present something that we think um, is an essential on which we all have unity. Like the idea that I mentioned at the end of the lecture, for example, which both me and my debate partner both agree on. Namely, the idea that God is going to defeat evil. 
I think we also both agree on, on the idea that there's some mystery involved in all of this when we try to work out a really hard problem like that. However, there are, there are clearly, clearly different ways that Christians work out really key problems. And so the debates are going to be about those ways. Um, yeah, oh, yes. so what about the pastor that we're bringing in? What's, what's, what's our pastor yes. going to do? Well, wait, before we get to the oh, pastor, yeah. just to let you know, um, we Before each, we get to that, before we get to Each known. professor will be representing an idea. They may not uh, fully, uh, they, they may actually um, uh, agree or disagree with what they're, the viewpoint that they're representing. So you'll see a little bit of that today. So the yeah. professor may actually think, gosh, that other person over there is saying something that I kind of agree with. Mm -hmm. So, um, but for the sake of your learning and for the sake of fun, because I like to see people get into kind of a, an argument every now and then, yeah. uh, they will be taking on a, a particular position for your learning. Um, and they also will be engaging in respectful and spirited dialogue with one another. Respectful so, and spirited. Why, yes. Why, why, would, why would a professor stand up and argue for a position that they didn't 100% believe in? Or maybe, they, or, you know, why would they do that? In order for teaching, because we're trying to display views. It may be the case that the professor really does fully agree with the position she or he is, is stating, and maybe that's an opportunity for you to, to dialogue with somebody after the, after the debate is over, upstage, uh, here at the stage. The debate will be refereed and and um, someone will offer commentary that uh, a local pastor will be doing that, uh, that duty today and will be reflecting on what they've heard from a pastoral role. So today we have uh, the pastor Insul Kang here. Do you remember here. Pastor Kang? Yes, yeah. back by popular demand from Village Church in Beaverton. And uh, she will be introducing the rest of the debate as well as yeah. um, the debating partners. So yeah. without further ado, Pastor Insel. Thank you so much. Uh, these chairs are very dangerous, so debaters, please know how your wheels are. Anyways. The chairs roll, the chairs move. They do, yes. That's That's uh, so just to give you a guideline, of I just get to be the moderator, um, and you guys get to be the active listeners. Please know that if you hear something you really like, an audible mmm or a snap is great. If you think something could potentially get controversial, give them an ooh. These are leaders. <laughs> they need to know that kind of feedback. Yeah. Um, but to repeat what Dr. Payne said, each will be debating a side that we have asked them to stand behind today. So again, feel free to continue to ask your professors more questions after today because uh, they have a lot more to say than just the one side they're representing today. Um, we have in the further corner the illustrious and amazing Dominique Doan, pastor of Westside as well as professor here of Applied Theology. Over here, the purveyor of Icelandic chill vibes, we have your professor, Brian Doak. Uh, yeah. of, uh, That's what I am. <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you what he teaches because it sounds like you know that and that's enough. Um, they are both going to start with seven minutes each and then we'll have three minutes to either maybe offer rebuttal or clarification after the other has gone. So are we ready for this debate? All right. Did we do uh, Rochambeau, Kai Baibo, who's starting? All right. yeah. Okay. All Pastor right. Doan. Pastor Doan. Let's do it. Welcome Pastor Dominic. Okay, cool. All right, can you all hear me? Is it good? Okay, so Monday, uh, Brian gave a brilliant lecture on the problem of evil and suffering, which by the way, wasn't that an amazing lecture? So, so good. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> and he, he laid out for us like a number of different perspectives and views and 
The view that I get to represent today is the eat your veggies perspective. Do you guys remember that one? Um, essentially, uh, it's an argument that suffering, even though it's painful and it's difficult and it's challenging, suffering can be good for you. So just you need to get a hold of it. You need to, in some sense, embrace it and accept it because that suffering will actually produce good in your life. And again, one of the terms we, we learned was theodicy. Uh, let me hear you guys say theodicy. And theodicy, of course, as Leah shared, is an attempt to explain how the existence of suffering is compatible with the existence of an all-loving, all-powerful God. Essentially, theodicy tries to answer the question, why? Why are there such things in our world as heartache or injustice? Why cancer or disease or war or country music or whatever? Like, fill in the blank. Why do these things exist? Why is there evil? And for thousands of years, it's not a new question, for thousands of years, scholars, thinkers, rabbis, theologians, pastors, professors have grappled with this question. But one of the earliest guys to wrestle with it was a guy named Irenaeus. Now, Irenaeus was the bishop of Lyon in France from in the second century. And his response to the problem of suffering is that suffering had a purpose. And that purpose is to make us more holy more virtuous, more like God. Um, Irenaeus, he argued that suffering can actually make us into better people. He used a fascinating illustration. Uh, he talked about Jonah and the whale. And he said, even as Jonah was swallowed up by this whale, wow, for <laughs> problem of evil, uh, for three days, uh, so too, Irenaeus said that humanity, mankind, has been swallowed up by suffering. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so we too are inside this world of suffering. It's, it's everywhere we look. But Irenaeus said, three days later, Irenaeus was, or Jonah was, resurrected. Uh, he was barfed down on a beach, right? And then he goes to the city of Nineveh. I was reading one Bible uh, commentary, and it was saying that after three days in the belly of that whale, uh, the acids would have eaten away all his clothing, it would have eaten away all of his hair on his body, and it would have bleached his skin completely white. So he shows up in Nineveh. He's like naked, bleach white, no clothes, and he says, repent. It's like no wonder the city's like, sure, we'll repent. We don't want to look like you. And so Jonah goes into the city. Everyone repents. And Irenaeus says his story is actually a symbol or a metaphor of what happened with what will happen with all of humanity. That even though we suffer, that suffering is going to lead to an ultimate redemption. Um, God allows suffering because it's instrumental in our life for greater good. So think of Romans chapter 5, verse 3. This is worth writing down. Paul writes, we also glory in our suffering. Romans 5, 3. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. Or in the words of Dante, he said, sometimes you have to go to hell in order to get to heaven. Think about it this way. Imagine if God created a world where suffering was impossible. Imagine if God made a world where it was perfectly safe. There's no obstacles or trials or hardship or pain. What kind of people would we be? If there was no hardship... Would we be empathetic? 
Would we be compassionate towards others? Would we have courage? Would we have grit? Would we have perseverance? Would we pray? Would we be generous? Would there be people who do incredible, courageous things in the face of adversity and pain? Irenaeus would argue, probably not. Because that version of reality is actually sheltered from suffering. It's more like the Lego gospel. Everything is awesome. But that's not the reality that we see in our world today. God created a world that would give us space to grow, and suffering is one of those things that creates that growth in us. Um, Kierkegaard, he actually spoke of this in terms of art, how pain can create beauty. And Kierkegaard asked, he said, what is a poet? A poet is an unhappy man who hides deep anguish in his heart but whose lips are so formed that when the sigh and cry pass through them, it sounds like lovely music. So there are times in our life when the only way that character can be composed in our life is through the song of suffering. Suffering weaves grace into our heart. It places us in solidarity with the wounded of the world. It shatters the mirage of self-reliance. Suffering makes us less superficial. Suffering can actually expand our love for others. So do a, do a quick thought experiment. Who is the person in your life that you would say, yeah, they are the most loving, generous, gracious person that I know? Who, who is that person for you? Maybe it's a roommate. One maybe it's a parent. Uh, maybe it's a person sitting next to you. Who, who is that person you'd say, they are the most loving person I've ever met? I would argue one of the reasons they're so loving and gracious and compassionate and kind is because they've been through stuff. That they've suffered, they've been hurt, they've been through the fire, but they've come through the other side stronger and better and with a greater capacity to love. Monday's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, so I'll leave you with this quote. This is what he said. But we are gravely mistaken to think that Christianity protects us from the pain and agony of mortal existence. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. To be a Christian, one must take up his cross with all its difficulties and agonizing and tragedy-packed content and carry it until that very cross leaves its marks upon us and redeems us to that more excellent way, which can only come through suffering. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Doak. Okay, thank you for that, Pastor Dominic. That was really good. That was really convincing. My heart is moved. <laughs> I like the MLK example, though. I like it better for my point than for that one, though, which I'll tell you presently. Ooh, <laughs> okay, I'm trying to just, you know, give a little thought. One of the most prominent theologians of the 20th century was Karl Barth. Karl Barth was a really big deal. Here's what Karl Barth wrote about trying to explain evil. Karl Barth said in his Church Dogmatics, big, big, multi-volume work of theology, he said that when we try to find a way for evil to make sense to us, what we end up doing is we accept it, we incorporate it into our philosophical outlook, we validate and exculpate it, Exculpate means declaring it innocent. And thus, if we are consistent, we finally justify it, not regarding and treating it as null, as nothing, 
but as an essential and necessary part of existence. That's what Karl Barth said. So unpacking a little bit, what does he mean by that? He's saying if you let the monster of evil into your house and try to domesticate it, you might start to treat it as normal. You might even start to think that it's okay, that it's good. Can you really do that, though, with evil? I have a new puppy in my house right now, and it's, it's, he's very small, he's like 12 weeks old, and trying to domesticate him in the house is really hard. But imagine trying to domesticate like a grizzly bear in your house. You can do a puppy, takes time, couple months, we'll be okay, I'll get over my constant 24-7 anxiety about the dog, okay, it'll happen. But a grizzly bear, I bet you'd never get over that. What if you had a dinosaur in your house, all Jurassic Park, and you get a dinosaur in your house, are you gonna domesticate that? Evil doesn't work that way. Evil can't be used and managed like a pet that way. Moreover, if evil has corrupted the world and we suffer in the broken state that we do suffer in, even our very attempts to understand the predicament might, might be uh, affected, might be broken. So here's what I want to suggest instead as an alternative view. The eat your vegetables and God using evil to teach us approach has some value. It, it features, I think, some obvious points that all Christians have always agreed on. I mean, who could disagree with the statement, who's a Christian, that God can teach us through suffering? I mean, that's just, that's good meat and potatoes or tofu and potatoes kind of stuff. But ultimately, I don't think it's the best approach. It shouldn't be our number one approach for thinking about suffering and pain. Here's why. I'm going to call this better approach. In the lecture, I called it let's fight. I'm going to call it now deliverance. I'm going to call this a deliverance approach. Deliverance. I don't know if any of you have memorized the Lord's Prayer. I try to say it to my younger daughter every night, the daughter that'll still let me say a prayer with her before bed. You know, the other one's a little older and she doesn't like me doing that, but... Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, it goes on and on. There's some important quotes in here, though, that I, wanna, I want to cite for my point here about this deliverance. Thy will be done, Jesus says in teaching his disciples to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So there are things that God actually wants us to accomplish on earth, things that are true in heaven and good and right. How, do, how are we going to accomplish those things? Jesus prays for us not to learn from evil, to accept evil, um, to pet evil on the head or to domesticate it in any way, but rather to be delivered from it. Evil must be subordinated to good, no matter what you do. Goodness is primary, not evil. Evil's a temporary enemy. I think Pastor Dominic agrees with that too, of course. And it will have its day in court, and it's going to be defeated. This is the biblical story, and this is the story of faith. God doesn't cause evil or toy with people's lives just so you can get some minute amount of learning from it, as though God is up there like a puppeteer orchestrating cancer and pain for you and your family to teach you some nice moral lesson you couldn't have learned otherwise. Okay? Jesus rides out to war against evil. The book of Revelation has this amazing image of Jesus riding out to war against all that is chaotic in the world. He is riding out, and granted, this might be symbolic language, but it'd be kind of awesome if it were literal language. He rides out in a robe drenched in blood with a sword coming out of his mouth. That's Jesus riding out to war against the devil. That's the approach. Robe dipped in blood, sword coming out of your mouth. Life is a school that we learn in. You know, people like Irenaeus would use this kind of language. So would other Stoics that Christians adopted. I, maybe. I mean, I like that approach. I'm a professor. I like school. There's nothing wrong with that. I wonder, though, if it's too passive. Spiritually, we're in a battle, not a school. We're in a school, too, okay? But we're also in a battle. We're teaming with God, we're teaming up with God to defeat evil, to heal sickness, even, actually, in the Christian vision, to rise from the dead. Um, 
this deliverance approach I'm talking about then, fighting evil, how, how do you actually do it then? Like, what does that mean? Well, here's, a, here's, here's something Christians do and must do. Pray. Like, prayer is our number one tool against fighting evil, you could say. This is something active that we do. And we pray as the Lord prayer, deliver us from evil. We know the ending of the story. And we're not, by taking this, this approach, we're not limiting God's power. We're not, I'm not suggesting that, that God is so weak and needs us and God's this feeble old man and we have to complete his work on earth and he can't do it. Um, it does mean, though, to take seriously the Bible's language of a cosmic battle that God is fighting and to take seriously the language of the Psalms. All over the Psalms, the psalmist cries out, Lord, deliver me, deliver us, do this. I'm righteous, I'm fighting, I'm sick, I'm about to die, I'm in anguish. Help, oh God, you know? This cry, this lament, I think this language is programmatic for us in our everyday spiritual life. Um, we can say, oh Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm hurt, I'm sick, help teach me. And we, of course we must say that. But we also have to say, Lord, deliver me. We also have to ride out with Jesus into battle against all kinds of things. Um, I do realize that taking this approach could lead us into some territory that could be confusing or ambiguous. For example, like politics. Like, if we're to ride out to war with Jesus uh, to fight against evil, there are all kinds of political questions that come up, right? Like, like take our healthcare system. I think we all want that to be better. We all want there to be healthcare access and for people to get it, but it's like, well, how do you do that? How do I ride out to war with Jesus against the demon of bad healthcare access? And now, we, now it's like, what are we doing now? Now we're having a political fight about, you know, whose you know, who's healthcare plan is the best and so on, or immigration or whatever kind of thing. So I admit that as kind of a confusing point of this approach. It's not always clear how to bring Jesus' kingdom down to earth as it is in heaven. It's not just obvious. There's not a 59-point plan about how to do that exactly in the year 2020. My main point, though, that I want to end with is that the Eat Your Veggies view, despite its merits, it kind of valorizes suffering. It makes suffering almost seem romantic in a way that I think it just isn't. It just isn't that way. It doesn't feel like that when you're suffering and when, you're, when you walk with somebody through something really terrible you know, those kind of messages don't always land very well. The prayers of the Bible, though, ask for deliverance. So I'll end with the words of, of Psalm 140 on this front, um, of one of many psalms. Deliver me, O Lord. That's the approach to evil that I want to present to you today. Thank you so much. And now we are going to take some time for each to have three minutes. Thank you both. You only actually spent about 15 to 24 seconds on average over the seven minutes allotted. Oh, so so thank you. Um, but three minutes to offer a rebuttal, or maybe you want to add something, or um, just shocking us. <laughs> I believe is Professor Yeah, go, go, first? Yeah. Go, okay. go for it. All right. uh, I can't offer the rebuttal after I yeah, just yeah. did the speech. Okay. okay, Brian, there's, there's a ton I would agree with there. Obviously, we're to fight against evil. And obviously, Jesus said, deliver us from evil. But in that same prayer where Jesus said, deliver us from evil, he also said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you just think about, you, you, you touched on politics, but I, I want to lean into that a little bit, because you think about all the ways that we have justified our own political agenda by saying we need to fight against evil. And think of the ways that we classify or label evil. Uh, in a few weeks' time, I'll be going to Rwanda, and they just had, they had a genocide about 30 years ago. And that was one of their tactics, was by labeling the other as evil. And, and we do that in politics as well. Well, it, it's the Republicans are evil, or it's the Democrats that are evil, or it's, you know, this, this people group that's evil. And so we stigmatize and label the other by saying we need to fight against evil, but 
when I look at the way of Jesus, sure, his, his robes were, were drenched in blood, but I would actually argue it's not the blood of other people, it's his blood. Uh, Jesus shows us the best way to fight against evil is not by going to war. He said, Peter, put away your sword. And, and then Jesus, he, he took the violence upon himself, and then through peacemaking, through the way of love, he rose again. So my question is, how, how do you how do you reconcile this, this theology of fight against evil with being a peacemaker, with loving your neighbor as yourself? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. I, so, okay, I, I like your idea. I, I think that's a very, that's a nifty idea that Jesus' robe is dipped in blood. It's his own blood. He's crucified. I, I don't know that that's the image in Revelation. I mean, I, I think Jesus is coming to slay the nations. Like, he's got, it's, it's warfare. Like, it's harsh stuff. I mean, Revelation's a very bracing book. Should the book of Revelation in that, in that imagery take precedence over the peacemaking of the Gospels? That's a hard question. I don't know quite what to do with that. I do want to bring up, though, I mean, on the politics point, I think that's a good one. I think that's really hard. I think we should be cautious about labeling people. I think calling people evil, um, you know, that starts to then drift into, just like you said, this language that can actually lead to horrible things like acts of violence and genocide that we do not want. So I admit that that's a problem that would need to be worked out with the, the deliverance view. However, MLK. I mean, MLK is a great example. I mean, was MLK political? MLK was ultra-political, I mean, ultra, ultra, ultra-political, had very specific things that he wanted to enact on earth, and had very specific things that came from the core of his Christian conviction about all people being made in the image of God, regardless of their skin color or where they came from, and so I think, I think MLK is a good model, I love that quote that you read, I think he's a good model for the fight approach, though, but done within the Christian boundaries of nonviolence, as it right. was done, um, and so on, so... That's, I don't know. Do you want to say anything about yeah, that? Yeah, do I, do I have time for one more? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, both of you only we took didn't use three minutes. over a yeah, minute, so, now so okay. just, uh, okay. you may reclaim your time. Okay, so yeah, an another, another question I would have about that pr perspective, and I want to make super clear, like, I do think we should fight against evil, absolutely, um, but w within a framework of, of being a peacemaker. Um, in, what, in what way is that theodicy or that approach to evil uh, an explanation of evil? Mm. So, say, for example, we go to med school and... We take classes on cancer. It's one thing to know how to respond to the cancer. We fight it. But the, the, the truly uh, learned professor will teach us not just how to fight it, but why it's there. Uh, what are the causes of it? So in, in what way is your perspective of we've got to fight against evil true, but why is it there to begin with? Why mm. the fight? Why, why do mm. we have to go to war? Mm. How do we explain that from... from a, a theistic worldview? That's a great question. And I, my own rational mind, I'm very much like in this feeling, like I, I want to know those answers. Like I want to talk about that. Um, and just like you say, you agree that we should fight evil. I totally agree that we should learn from evil. Like that seems, or learn from suffering. I mean, suffering and evil, these aren't quite the same terms. It's hard to define evil in a way. I think it's kind of like, I was, I was talking with my section saying, evil is one of those words, it's kind of like, I know it when I see it. You know, we kind of, you know, it's, it's like that. It's hard to just make a list of exactly what is evil. But about it not being an explanation, that might be true. But this is where I go back to my quote from Karl Barth. To explain it in a certain term is to rationalize it and, in fact, try to domesticate it. And I don't think that this problem is maybe something that can be domesticated like that. Mm. It may be that my explanation is, in a sense, admittedly, a kind of an anti-explanation. Yeah. Yeah. A kind of pivoting from explanations and saying like, well, if God had created this and if this had happened and what if the world was good, it did it. You know, it's just like, these are not answers that our faith tradition gives us in scripture. There are answers though that our theological tradition does give us and I respect yeah. that tradition. But on this topic, 
I wonder if the anti-explanation of action is the better one. Yeah, is it, is it enough though to simply say we have to fight? So to get like super personal, um, uh, my mother-in-law uh, three weeks ago passed away. She went mm. to sleep Christmas night. She didn't wake up. Right. So my, my wife has been like just in you know, grief the mm. last three weeks and it's been, it's been really tough. Um, how would your, that exp explanation of evil give hope to her. Mm. If I just looked at my wife and said, sorry, your mom just died. You need to go to war. You mm. need to fight. Well, <laughs> what I would say, what she needs in that moment is hope. What she needs in that moment is that her pain and suffering mm. in some way can be redeemed, mm. that God will use it, that he is working all things mm -hmm. together for the good. And that's where the eat your veggies yeah. perspective can actually bring a ton of hope to those who are in the trenches of suffering. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. I know that Pastor Kang is going to take over here in a second, but I will just respond to that and say, there's a, a 20th century American philosopher named Josiah Royce, and he had a famous statement about theodicy. He said, here's the test of every theodicy. Can you say it at a funeral, and will it comfort mourners? Um, that seems really reasonable, you know? I also think, though, I, you know, how, how could the fight approach help? It wouldn't be like going to people at a funeral and being like, let's get out and fight. But I think it's an approach that says, what is that hope? If that hope is ultimately that all of the forces that cause all of the diseases that, that we are, in fact, in a struggle against yeah. this kind of thing, yeah. and that this is something that God is going to defeat. I think you could ask that same question of the eat your vegetables approach. If someone, you know, dies of their, uh, suffers and dies, how, ha how, has, how has that person learned from the suffering? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that could be an equally tough question to answer. How do we learn from the fact that someone else mm -hmm. died in a tragic and unexpected yeah. way? I mean, I think that that also produces hard questions. But the hope thing, I think, yeah. is maybe a place where I could lean into yeah. with my approach, and I think that that's right what you said about that, that that's what's needed in that moment. Thank you both. Um, Dr. Payne, just doing a time check. We have time for a little bit of... Reflection and questions, yes, absolutely. Okay, from our students as well. Mm -hmm. yes, yes, we have about 13 minutes. Perfect. I just want to start by uh, just posing a more of a rhetorical question, and um, I don't know if either professors want to reply to it before we get to the students, but as I'm listening, one of the things that I think about is it's easy for me to disengage as I'm listening um, the uh, kind of day-to-day -day lived experience of suffering. I'm hearing these two professors offering really amazing um, academic cognitive, it's making my brain go, ideas and, and, and facts, and then I can't help but in when I think about uh, the pastoring I do or the people I interact with when it comes to suffering, um, often I'm posed with the the conundrum of needing to try to explain God's character in the midst of their suffering. Often I find humans are able to actually be, um, it's happening to you right now. You know it's not going to change for that immediate moment. But what can I offer them about what this reveals to them about who God is to them? I can't necessarily just say um, this is both going to become a fantastic lesson and uh, post for someone about your inspiration and it's going to be great, um, or slash, uh, you know, this is just a really great thing for us to fight against um, evil in this world in all shapes and forms. So that just comes up to mind right away. Um, and when I think about you all as students too, suffering doesn't always look, even though this is the age, suffering doesn't always look like a necessarily a physical problem or um, a major family tragedy. Suffering could be you've not realized who you were outside of hometown, high school structures, suddenly you are a whole different person on this campus. That could actually be some mental and emotional identity suffering. It might be a relationship, friendship or romantic, um, and it's causing you to have so many feels and doubt yourself or question the other person, and that's actually also suffering. So suffering, I just wanna let you know, it has so many levels, 
And you can't always just give um, amazing quotes of early Stoics slash um, not everyone wants a Bible verse right away. So that's just on my mind, uh, but let's please turn it to you all um, for questions. Oh, big old hand. Hey, right we away. got hands. I've got the microphone, and uh, Rachel's going to help me out. If you would rather write down your question, you can hand it to her, but I saw your hand first. Hi, good morning. My name's James. Uh, Dr. Doak, I actually have a question for you. Um, so you're talking about um, Jesus being uh, against evil and how he doesn't use that as a tool just for essentially minor lessons. Um, in Job, I believe it's the second chapter or third chapter, um, actually from the reading this week, um, there's a section there where he, where the Lord's speaking with Satan and he tells Satan how Satan has incited him against Job and it seems to be then, as you go through Job, um, really part of the bigger lesson is actually for the friends of Job and not for Job himself as uh, his friends are then um, humiliated in how they um, actually gave counsel to Job. And this kind of, kind of seems to be a time where um, Jesus actually works kind of with evil, lets mm -hmm. Satan put hands on him and, and destroy his family for a lesson that doesn't actually seem to be really intended for Job at the end of that chapter. So I'm kind of wondering how that fits in with your uh, particular viewpoint there. Good one, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, he's excited. And from the reading, extra credit. Yeah. One amazing thing about the Bible is that, and this is my own theological position about the Bible's approach to suffering, is I don't think that there's a single picture of suffering and this, I don't think there's a single slam dunk passage that you can use that, against which you can't bring up another passage from somewhere else that has a different perspective. So I acknowledge that as what I think is a wise and helpful and indeed holy diversity within scripture on a question like this. Um, is, what is, is what is happening in the book of Job actually evil? I don't, I don't know, the word evil maybe isn't being used. Is that character, this is going beyond the bounds of what I think we can deal with, so I shouldn't say it, but I'll just go there. Um, I don't, there's a translation problem, of course, in Job in which that character might not actually be Satan, like with a capital S, but rather some other angelic figure. It's called, it's, in, in Hebrew, it's called Hasatan. Um, Hebrew language doesn't use a definite article with a proper name. So it can't, so by the author's own view, the, the, the word Satan in Job in chapter 2 is not capital S Satan. It could be, you could think of it that way, theologically or metaphysically or something like that, but linguistically and in the literary sense in the book, it might not be that. That actually doesn't solve the problem, though, because you're still left with, like, why would God be doing this to somebody? And that goes definitely against the grain of my contention that God is not, like, toying with people's lives. But that's why Job is so weird, and that's why the book is so difficult, is because it presents a picture exactly like that. I can only say that that's not, that's not a constant biblical picture that's out there, but it is there, and so it can't be swept away but it can't easily be dealt with either. I know that that's not a good answer to that question, but the book of Job is a stunning, strange book. I think ultimately, though, the book of Job leaves us with something else, a view of God just above the entire fray um, as a creator in the cosmos, and maybe even suggests that somehow, in the end, even if God doesn't you know, go down and... I mean, it is the Satan character that does the striking, not God, but still, in the end, that God is somehow responsible for the system. But otherwise, I'm not sure. I don't know. Pastor Dominic, do you yeah. have a good... You have I know good? the answer. Yeah. It's uh, eat your veggies. Eat your veggies, bro. <laughs> so, no, I, that's such a good question, and I think it actually does line up to a certain degree to what Irenaeus said, because his whole thing was that God causes or allows the suffering in order to teach us things through it, that, that our suffering can be redeemed. And I think the book of Job is a picture of that, um, that his suffering 
uh, is redeemed. I mean, you look at the good that, that has happened as a result of the book of Job. We're all studying it now. We're all learning from it now. And, and so I, I think in the midst of the heartache, he said, you know, though, though you slay me, yet will I trust you. So God was deepening his trust. He was deepening his character through that pain. The question I would have just spiritually for all this is prayer. What role does it play? Are we just playing a game? Are we just faking? Like, oh, God wants me to fake prayer, prayer to be, for someone to be healed, but it's like, he was already going to heal them. He just wanted me to go through the motions. Like, I'm a puppet. You know, like, I don't like seeing my spiritual, I, maybe it's just personal, like, the idea of spirituality as a game that's already fixed in the end for all these predetermined lessons and not actually contingent upon my actual prayers. Um, maybe it's my charismatic upbringing, but I lean into that. Let's get another question. Thank you. All right, this one was uh, written down. What are your opinions on Matthew 10, 34, where Jesus says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Yeah. <laughs> Goes to my fight, my fight at one. Um, that's a tough passage. Hard to know what to do with that. I'm not sure what, I, I don't know how that could directly apply to the problem of evil. Would you, would you relate it in some way to this question of suffering? Yeah. Um, hmm. I think it may push back a little bit on kind of the peacemaking approach. Um, but whatever Jesus meant by that, I don't think what he did mean was for all his disciples to take up swords and fight against Rome, because that's not what happened. Right. And when that moment came to a head in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was the one who told Peter, hey, put away your sword. Uh, so I, I think there's something else going on there, rather than Jesus trying to cause an insurrection, a revolution, or violent revolt. And we, we would also have to be open to meanings that are not just strictly literal, too, like that Jesus, you know, the sword can be a metaphor for conflict. You know, Jesus is saying, don't think that I've come into your life to, like, relieve you from conflict. There's going to be conflict. Of what kind of conflict? Thank you. Should we try a hand? All right, let's get some other hands up. Okay, I see one here. Hello, uh, my name's Kevin. And I've got a question about um, the creed itself. So our section of the creed for this week is suffered under Pontius Pilate. And my question about that is my understanding of the text is, um, and this could be incorrect, that the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to Pilate and said, here's a criminal, execute him. And he was like, wait, hang on a minute. Uh, what did he do wrong? And they couldn't come up with anything that like violated Roman law. So he was like, all right, well, then he's under your jurisdiction. You deal with him. And they were like, oh, we don't want to do that. You, you deal with him. And, and they kept badgering him about it, and he finally gives in, and he's like, all right, sure. Do with him what you will. And, and then later, when Jesus is actually executed, he goes and writes a sign that says, um, here is the king of the Jews. And they go, you're, you're kidding about that, right? And he's like, quote, scripsy, scripsy, which means what I have written, I have written. So are we maybe a little bit remiss in um, blaming Pilate for the execution of Jesus if it was really the Jewish leaders behind the whole thing? I do think it's strange that, the, that Pilate, as I said in the lecture, I think it's odd. I realize we only have like one minute here. I, I do think it's odd that Pilate shows up in the creed, you know? The question, though, of who was responsible for Jesus' death, what you just did there is a very common thing, which is you took all four Gospels and you kind of made your own like mishmash version or like picked one, but that's not actually... So the four Gospels are all different on the trial and the execution and have different things in them. And what you did was you kind of quoted, I'm not a good enough New Testament scholar, Dr. Gupta is though, to know what you, you were patching together parts of things and so on about who is to blame. But, I have, but, but this issue of like who actually in that political gritty circumstance, 
who actually handed Jesus over and why. My, my reading is that the Gospels are a little more ambiguous on this than it was just the Jewish leaders crying for his blood. The book of Matthew has that as a strong theme, but other Gospels don't quite show it that way. So I'm not sure what to make of that, but I do agree with you that it is weird that Pilate's involved and that Pilate's name makes it in the creed. Why would we name him in the creed? But there he is. He's named. Like every good debate, you never feel like there's a complete stop. So this is where we're ending for today. So I'll turn it over to Dr. Payne. Yes, thank you so much, Pastor.